0: Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Vaselli And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, we're just around the corner from that great time of year when kids are heading back to school of all ages. We're excited for them and uh, wishing them uh, best in the new year.
1: Well, I cannot believe that once again, summer has flown by. It seems to go faster every year. But this is a great time to remind our listeners that this is the time of year to remember to schedule those back to school checkups, update your children's vaccines and immunizations. And while you're at it, don't forget to update your own.
0: It's also the start of school for folks pursuing careers in medical professions. It's a good time to note that two new medical schools are opening around the country. One in our own home state, Quinnipiac University's new medical school is going to be focused in on primary care.
1: Well, we are excited about that, and a shout-out to them, and congratulations on their big effort. Um, And this comes at a time when we're seeing that millions of Americans will be gaining access to health coverage under the Affordable Care Act, and that means we're also acutely aware that we simply don't have enough primary care providers, nor enough in the pipeline. I think we're seeing a trend towards more medical students choosing careers in primary care. That's a very good thing, and it can't happen soon enough.
0: And, Margaret, you know well because you're the founder of our Nurse Practitioner Residency Program. We have eight new residents coming in very shortly, and we look forward to uh, them joining in in the movement to increase primary care all across America.
1: And a shout-out to those who are graduating this year. They're going to all corners of the country to serve as primary care providers, and we're very excited for them. Now, our guest today has done significant analysis on the need for a better national policy to direct resources towards filling that primary care need across the United States. Dr. Kavita Patel is an internist at Johns Hopkins and is the Managing Director of Delivery, System Reform, and Clinical Transformation at the Brookings Institution.
0: She's also co-chair of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Health Professional Workforce Initiative. Dr. Patel will be discussing their reports, which examine the need for better national planning strategies for projecting health care workforce needs in the future.
1: She is a terrific guest, Mark. And we will also be hearing from factcheck.org's Lori Robertson, who we can always count on to be out there uncovering untruths about health reform in the public arena.
0: But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love to hear from you.
1: Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Patel in just a moment.
0: But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's... Headline
2: News. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines electronic health records and meaningful use. The Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society is looking for more time. They've asked the Health and Human Services Secretary, Kathleen Sebelius, for a six-month extension for hospitals, physicians, and other healthcare professionals to meet federal guidelines for Stage 2 meaningful use criteria for the Federal Electronic Health Record Incentive Payment Program. Under the current rules, providers who have met Stage 1 requirements for two years must step up to Stage 2 level requirements by the end of the year to remain compliant with the stimulus package money supporting the switch to EHRs. Healthcare information leaders asked the feds to leave the stage two starting dates alone, but to give providers 18 months instead of one year to achieve 90 days of stage two meaningful use compliance. The EHR incentive program has thus far paid out more than $15.5 billion to over 4,000 hospitals and more than 305,000 physicians and other eligible professionals. America's obesity rates holding steady, but we're still fat. According to a recent study conducted by the Trust for America's Health and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, statistics have been released on the nation's obesity rates, and it's been found that after three decades of steady increases, rates held steady in the last year. The report, F as in fat, how obesity threatens America's future, shows that obesity rates vary region by region, with the South again leading the charge in obesity rates. Louisiana has knocked Mississippi out of the long-held top spot with just under 35% obesity among adults in that state. And they vary by age as well. The obesity rate for boomers in Alabama and Louisiana is over 40%. And sadly, this is one area where there's gender parity. Men have caught up to women and now have roughly equal obesity rates. There's also a direct correlation between income and obesity. The lower the education and income, the higher the obesity rates. One rate has gone up dramatically over the past decade, though. The numbers of morbidly obese with body mass indexes of over 40 percent. That number has risen by 350 percent since the beginning of 2000. The report issues guidelines for tackling the problem, calorie labeling at restaurants. The report cautions more efforts are needed for obesity prevention that obesity-related health costs stand poised to cripple the nation's economy. Medical residencies gateway to practicing medicine through a gauntlet of sleep deprivation experiments. Well, at least it used to be. A pair of recent studies looked at the impact of regulations restricting the number of hours first-year residents could work at a stretch during their on-the-job training. Critics of the new model limiting their shifts to 16 hours warned it would negatively impact the flow of their training, especially as it would limit interns' actual exposure to patients over time. Researchers at UPenn and the Boston VA, among others, looked at mortality rates after the new restrictions were put in place, limiting residents to 80-hour work weeks and no more than 24 hours per shift. Mortality rates stayed relatively flat the first three years, then started to decline. Another study at Johns Hopkins looked at the breakdown of how interns' their time with the limited hour restrictions. Access to and actual time with patients did drop slightly, but they also collaborated more away from the patient, communicating more through electronic devices, suggesting they were keeping one another up to speed remotely. It suggests that while these students had less face time with patients, they increased their team approach to care by some 20%. And speaking of sleep deprivation, America's got an insomnia problem with an estimated A new study out shows instead of knocking yourself out with drugs, try running it out. But you'll have to slog it out, too. A study posted in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine found that for those who added at least three to four days of intense 30-minute cardio, improved their sleep each night by 45 minutes, which is significant. But the study found it took up to four months of that steady practice cardio for that sleep benefit to kick in. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Kavita Patel, Managing Director of the Delivery System Reform and Clinical Transformation at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Patel is also co-chair of the Bipartisan Policy Center's Health Professional Workforce Initiative and co-author of two just-released reports, The Complexity of National Healthcare Workforce Planning and Better Healthcare Worker Demand Projections. She worked in the Obama administration as well as on a committee led by Senator Ted Kennedy in drafting of the Affordable Care Act. She's a practicing primary care physician at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Patel, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you so much for having me, and please call
0: me Kavita. Kavita, great. So, um, we're just months away from the implementation of the Affordable Care Act in January 2014, and we'll see tens of millions of uninsured Americans added to the system. So, tell us a little bit about why workforce projections are so complex in healthcare and why your reports are so important in helping us understand why the lack of relevant healthcare workforce data is leaving us ill equipped to meet the coming needs.
3: Let me just start by telling you that when we were surprised, it was sobering to myself that when you look for supply estimates, just how many healthcare professionals we have in this country, you'll find such a variation from one source to another. And it's because of how we count health professionals. So in some cases, physicians are counted uh, only as primary care doctors and don't necessarily include the specialists. And then in some cases, nurses are people with just an RN. But if you go to some of the nursing societies, they also include people with RNs as well as other advanced degrees like PhDs. And so there was such a wide variety of our estimates that we thought, okay, We need to first do a deeper dive in what are the sources of data, what are the differences in the sources of data, and then we can start to talk about how do we look at a model for what kind of healthcare workers we might need, or for example, the demand of healthcare. And it was, uh, as I mentioned, very sobering to try to understand all the differences between some of these numbers, which made it even more complex.
1: It seems to me, Kavita, that one of the challenges you have, and I I thought you made this point really compellingly in one of your reports, is that we keep piling lots of new data on the top, and you've made the case we really have to change the underlying assumptions if we want to make use of the new data. Can you talk a little bit more about that for our audience? So let's just take a very basic
3: example. A lot of our data assumptions about what kind of workforce we need are modeled on our current system or old systems of seeing patients in office visits and having it always be a physician who leads that office visit. And we also have used other assumptions about how many doctors you need per thousand patients. And, and it, 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 we've used that model for years, in fact, decades. Mm-hmm. And in all in the meantime, we've since had all these new models of care, patient-centered medical homes, accountable care organizations. We've seen a great proliferation of community health workers, lay health workers, the use of nurse practitioners and physician's assistants in practices. But our model and the way we think about how much care we need still hinges on this very cottage-like industry with a doctor in charge. Those are the assumptions we use when we start to say, well, there's a shortage. And I think that that's part of what we tried to tackle was, wait a minute. Let's not just talk about how we might need one doctor for every you know, 5,000 people in the country. Let's actually think about what kind of care do 5,000 people need, and then what are the skill sets of the various members of the healthcare team that best suit those needs. That's almost flipping the equation and saying, what is it that we want to get to and how do we work backwards to figure out what we need to fulfill
0: that? You know, you're seeing the fast rise of retail clinics, a lot of different ways that people are delivering care. And you really look at the distinction between patient demand and true health care need. How are these needs uh, differing in in, uh, different socioeconomic groups as well?
3: We really thought uh, long and hard about how you deal with especially the needs of high-risk populations. Take, for example, the 11 million Medicare dual-eligibles and Medicare-Medicaid dual-eligibles in this country. Really high concentration of need. And one thing that we've found is that in modeling our demand side, so we talked about supply a little bit, and I kind of alluded to the demand that's where the information about subpopulations really comes to play. What we found was that instead of looking at the, the location or site of care, we really need to understand how could care delivery to special populations look differently differently we must agree on some standardized data reporting. And, and this means not just on the supply side, but we have to have some standardized reporting on the demand side, especially for populations of special interest.
1: One area it seems to me from uh, working at the state level anyway is we don't have any uh, uniformity across states in terms of the kind of data we collect. What's your approach as a really a, a national research group looking at this? What's your approach to trying to get states to agree on how to collect data in common and electronically, and what the critical elements of data are to collect?
3: So this is a perfect question because we actually reached out to the National Governors Association, who has been very interested in this exact issue. What are the minimum state data reporting requirements? And we canvassed across the states to try to understand what is it that they currently do and then how can we effectively give them some recommendations. And they are actually more than willing to adopt a little bit more of a standard approach. But I was surprised. People said, look, we are overwhelmed. We have no idea what to do about this. We want you to tell us what to do. So what we actually did is we went back and then went to our federal colleagues in the Health Resources and Services Administration, which is tasked with doing some of this work, and through the Affordable Care Act, we actually went back to them and said, listen, can you tell us what you're coming up with in terms of minimum data elements? and how you are recommending those be collected. And then we will take those back to the states. And that's that's exactly the process that we're in right now. We're actually taking what HRSA has been doing and recommending and saying to the states, we're not telling you you have to do this. Here's what the federal government is trying to do. Here's how we could recommend you do this. And the timing could not be better because they are already updating their data collection infrastructure to meet the needs of the expanded Medicaid enrollment and health insurance exchanges. So they're willing to do this, but they just need help. I mean, these are these are really great people inside the states who are trying to do everything at the same time. So we found that it was best to pair the work going on at the federal level and say, here's the minimum, and health IT plays a big role in this. We're trying to explore right now how to get the best how we can try to understand some health workforce staffing information based on the health IT systems that are currently deployed across the country.
0: We're speaking today with Dr. Kavita Patel, Managing Director of the Delivery System Reform and Clinical Transformation at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution. Dr. Patel served in the Obama administration as the Director of Policy for the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and Public Engagement. So lots of exciting opportunities arise out of the Affordable Care Act. It's created many new incentives uh, and innovations in healthcare It's also created some new challenges. You know, walk through for our listeners some of those challenges and how you think we might best meet them.
3: I do think that we are really at a precipice of how can we leverage the data that we have, and then these emerging models of care. And so one thing I would say is that we walk through this as we're thinking about restructuring care differently and we're thinking about trying to decrease the cost of health care, and then we're also looking our patients in the eyes and saying, you know what, I'm going to try to make sure that I give you the best information in as small amount of time as possible but I will also hope that you take that information and make better decisions from it. So I see this as like a narrative of a a, a kind of a cycle, a life cycle. Then we also have to look at some of these emerging innovation models and say, what are we learning about the kinds of of training, the skill sets, and the response from our patients? And then how do we feed that back? I mean, we have a massive infrastructure of education in our country. And we don't talk about it a lot. We talk about health reform a lot. We don't talk about going in and opening up our classrooms and saying, wait a minute, are we actually training the types of people that we actually want on the receiving end? And I would say to you there's a great disconnect there. Mm -hmm. So I see this as a great life cycle in a true biological sense. We need to cycle it back. And I think that, to me, That's the narrative that not just this workforce study, but the Bipartisan Policy Center is doing work on cost containment. They're doing work on
1: health IT. Those things have to marry together. You know, the Affordable Care Act had a number of uh, important provisions that have not yet come to pass. And I noted in your uh, report you addressed or you listed one of them, which we actually authored around the demonstration grants for family nurse practitioner training programs, which are in there but not yet appropriated funded, but much larger than that uh, really is the creation of the National Healthcare Workforce Commission that would have addressed this need for more centralized data and I think probably would have gone at that connection between education, training, not just to clinical care, but to models of care. And what's your expectation about what will happen with that National Healthcare Workforce Commission?
3: If I start getting bogged down in what Congress can and can't do, I I then just having worked on the inside, it can get pretty depressing. I am optimistic that all the things we're talking about, and by the way, I'm I'm a fan of your program because I think you all do a great job of bringing these complex concepts to people in in a very kind of digestible way. I think everything that you've been talking about for months now, quite honestly, is going to come to a head when we've got headlines in 2014 that say, you know, in certain parts of the country, it's hard to find a primary care doctor, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that'll force the issue for people to say, wait a minute, we had this provision in health reform, what happened to it? And then we're really talking about 2 to $3 million for the Workforce Commission to be funded. But in the big picture and the impact it could have, it's a great investment. So I'm optimistic that in the next year we're going to see enough demand for the information that the commission will have. In the meantime, though, we have got to figure out how to leverage the private sector. Mm-hmm. And I know we say that a lot in healthcare, but I'm serious. We are seeing the big insurance companies, big integrated systems like Geisinger, Kaiser, We're seeing them come forward with their own creative data set solutions, models of care, and estimates. I think we need to go back to some of these leaders in the private sector and say, listen, let's actually think about what the needs could be and what you can teach the rest of the country in terms of what you've found, and then actually let's take that out and show – how states like Texas can think about Medicaid expansion and workforce models in a different way.
0: I really liked it when you took us back to that big picture, looking at the triple aim of the Affordable Care Act, to increase access, improve outcomes, and reduce cost, and questioning how they come back to the educational system. So there's, there's so many different models happening, and I just really worry that the educational system and our leadership for that next generation of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, physicians, all the allied health providers just aren't ready for prime time. And we are at a point of reinvention and redefinition of how primary care could operate in an optimal setting. What, what should we be looking out for rays of hope from you?
3: Let me tell you that I always look for rays of hope in a lot of different payer settings. because We often talk about, um, you know, Virginia Mason, Group Health, Kaiser, they're in capitated settings. They've got kind of a lovely bubble around them. So to speak. so I look for things that could actually take advantage of a really amazing care in a fee-for-service setting. So, Let me give you two examples in Medicare. Um, one is a program in Florida called ChenMed. They take care of pretty much 100% Medicare patients, and they do it in Florida, one of our costliest states. And they do the following. They send out a town car to pick up patients, and they do auto-reminders for patients And these are elderly patients, but we think the elderly don't use technology. They do. They've got grandchildren that they talk to on Skype and Facebook more than I do. So they, they meet the needs of patients that generally cost the system a lot of money. But they meet the needs by dealing with things that don't get reimbursed by Medicare. But what they found is they can actually make money, meaning they're not losing money on this. And they do this kind of wraparound and text reminders about preventive services that are due. And I think that that's an amazing accomplishment in in the Miami area and the second one I'll tell you about is something you may have heard of because he was profiled in one of Atul Gawande's essays. Rashika Fernandopol started Iora Health. And they take what you're talking about a little bit, Mark, with kind of the pod design, mm-hmm. but they take the hotspotters and design a clinic around hotspotters' needs. And they're doing this in, in Massachusetts and in Atlantic mm-hmm. City, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and they've just opened – all in a Medicaid, Medicare setting, mostly dual eligibles. And they sat and looked at what hotspotters' needs are when they do come to clinic. And they've basically structured an entirely different flow of work to address those needs. Mm -hmm. And so I think that those are rays of hope because they're entrepreneurial. They're in our current system, which in a large way is somewhat broken financially, Mm -hmm. but they're doing something and they're making it work financially. And what I hope is that I really want Rashika and Chen Med to give us the data on how they've understood the staffing needs for their health care and how we can actually go back to some of the top medical schools and, and nursing schools and allied health worker schools in the country and say, how are we training people to engage and work in these environments?
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. Kavita Patel, <coughs> Managing Director of Delivery System Reform and Clinical Transformation at the Engelberg Center for Healthcare Reform at the Brookings Institution. Doctor Patel is also the co chair of Bipartisan Policy Center's Health Professional Workforce Initiative and the co-author of two just-released reports, The Complexities of National Healthcare Workforce Planning and Better Healthcare Worker Demand Projections. You can access these reports and learn more about her work by going to bipartisanpolicy.org. Dr. Patel, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me.
4: that claimed the IRS said the cheapest health insurance plan for families under the federal health care law would cost $20,000. But that's not what the IRS said at all. Instead, this number comes from a hypothetical example in an IRS document about how it would calculate the tax penalty for a family that doesn't obtain health insurance, as required by the Affordable Care Act. A Treasury official told us that the $20,000 figure was, quote, not an estimate of premiums. Like many viral claims, this figure was taken out of context and then embellished. The IRS wasn't estimating the cost of premiums at all. The fact is, no one knows exactly how much insurance plans sold on state and federal-run exchanges will cost. Back in January 2010, shortly before the law was passed, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office estimated that the cheapest plan would cost between $12,000 and $12,500 for family policies. But CBO hasn't updated that estimate since. CBO did say that about 80% of the 25 million people getting insurance on these exchanges by 2023 will receive federal subsidies to help cover the cost, and the average subsidy would be $8,290 for the year. For those who are interested, the Kaiser Family Foundation has a subsidy calculator on its website that gives a sense of who's eligible for subsidies and how much those subsidies might be.
2: I'm Mariano O'Hare with this tech report. Imagine the future where any object you need, even an organ or a layer of skin, could be grown in front of your eyes in a 3D printer. The future? It's here. 3D printing is exactly what it says. Three-dimensional objects are produced via any number of materials in a mechanized back-and-forth, back-and-forth layering system and through basic computer-animated design be programmed to build, well, just about anything.
5: 3D printing will change everything. And more to the point, because it's physical reality, I think it's especially going to change the way we think about money and also all the opportunities for making money from these objects.
2: It's become a hot topic at the world's many TED Talk gatherings and implications for healthcare could be limitless in their potential. At a recent TEDx event in Hamburg, Germany, 3D expert David Flanders shared what is already being tested in tissue growth using 3D printing technology.
5: There's already several universities in the States who are actually starting to be able to graft skin cells from you. Cultivate those skin cells, put them in a, again in a syringe-type mechanism, be able to put your hand down or other body part, lay the printer over the top, and actually print a new layer of skin on you. This is, this is actually happening.
2: Since technology is already working hard at generating the growth of new organs through all kinds of biological means and thousands of people die each year waiting for organ donations... There could be a time in the not-too-distant future where you could grow your own new liver in a 3D printer from your own cells.
5: And this is where I think this can really change um, lives full stop is the fact that Wake Forest has already demonstrated the ability to actually cultivate your liver cells, cultivate those, and then print you a new liver. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't stop signing your organ donor cards. Uh, This technology is not fully fully capable yet, but it's well on its way, and it's starting to get there.
2: There are far-reaching implications for building everything from a better implantable medical device to exact specifications to a person's own body type, chemistry, and shape. Better prosthetics designed to fit perfectly the dimensions of one's own specific injury or the foundation for growing new body parts like ears in a matter of hours. 3D printers are being created in desktop-sized units that could be built and assembled for a few hundred dollars. Expect to see a lot more technological breakthroughs in medicine in this exciting world of 3D printing. I'm Mariano here with this tech report.
0: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Jennifer Staple-Clark was a sophomore at Yale, an internship at the ophthalmology office turned out to be a life-transforming experience. She realized that many of the patients who had limited access to medical care were coming into the office with serious eye conditions that had gone past the point of reversing, leading to unnecessary blindness. What she launched from her dorm room 11 years ago was a local initiative to improve access to preventative eye care to the neediest population in her local community. Her vision quickly grew Within two years, she took her organization, Unite for Sight, worldwide and has since turned it into one of the leading providers of global eye care in hundreds of communities around the world. Unite for Sight brings social entrepreneurs, public health experts, local eye surgeons and volunteers together to bring eye care into some of the most underserved areas of the world. The motto at Unite for Sight is that local problems need local solutions, so they use each country's existing pool of ophthalmologists to treat their local patients. Patients. They also train community health workers in each area they serve, thus removing traditional barriers and also ensuring a continuum of care for all of the patients they serve. The community health workers provide education and transportation to get doctors to the patients' communities and patients to the hospital if surgery is indicated. Since its inception, Unite for Sight has served 1.4 million patients worldwide and restored eyesight to roughly 55,000 people, restoring not only their but their dignity and ability to be productive members of their communities as well. Identifying a pressing medical need and improving the quality of life by offering basic preventative eye care to those who had previously gone without. Now that's a bright idea.
1: This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
2: And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health.